0: Hello, good afternoon. I'm Alex Mosed, and we're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the back and forth between tech monopolies and incumbent businesses. And how is this story going to play itself out? Uh, So for news today, Peloton filed their S1 today about going public. We're going to dive into that. Is Peloton a platform company? Um, Big story in the Wall Street Journal. Amazon's taking down a bunch of products like 5,000 of or 3,000 of them. 3, of them. Um, is this the end for Amazon? OpenTable launches food delivery. Uh interesting move here and has partnered with some of the food delivery platforms uh, that everyone is familiar with. Um, OpenTable is owned by booking.com. So let's jump into that. And then take a higher, you know, take a step back and look overall at what's going on between this common battle between Uh, value investors and growth investors and a what does that even mean but but what are kind of the differences in thought process on investment strategy and the next five to ten years so looking at peloton uh at their s1 you know i was reading through it and uh, i was searching for how many times they used the word platform it came up 96 times um in the s1 and um They also use things like social and network and uh, all this kind of stuff here. I'll show you Um, 94 times. Sorry. And uh, so it is Peloton a platform company. You know, they say that we are the largest interactive fitness platform in the world with a loyal community of over 1.4 million members. Now, if you don't know what Peloton is, you can basically buy a fitness bike for $2,000 and it has an iPad on it. Now, that would be somewhat I mean that's overgeneralizing. not a it. very
1: generous interpretation
0: Nick Johnson, uh co-author <laughs> with me on the book um and but it but it is actually tracking how how uh vigorously you are biking and it's feeding all of that data into right. uh the iPad. You can just download the iPad app and get a membership where now you get access to the content um, but the content is linear. Right. right. And wh- how would you
1: describe it? My understanding Peloton basically makes uh, most of that content themselves. They have you know, backgrounds and things you can bike through.
0: Uh, ad- well, they have trainers right. that will have you in live sessions. Right. And um, those trainers are their trainers on their balance sheet. Right. It, it's,
1: they basically have a bunch of service providers that they hire and pay for that you get as part of this a $2,000 bike service that you purchased. Plus I think it's a 40, subscription fee,
0: $40, right? $40 a month yeah. as well. Um, yeah. and yep, $39 a month. I mean, it's great. And um, if you're a digital only subscriber, it's $19.49 a month. And I mean, look, the growth for them is, is amazing. They've basically doubled revenue in the past two years. Yep. They are losing money, but there's huge growth, which clearly, you know, investors in these kinds of businesses highly appreciate. And what the interesting thing is they were saying is that um, they actually raised the price of the bike and cuz their customers are more affluent right and so the customers thought the bike was too cheap and that actually cheapened the product so they basically just raised the price of the bike and then the product seemed to be more appropriately targeted or priced for this demographic that they're going after. So that, that was really interesting. Good position to be in. Um, yeah. Raise the price. And this seems like a better quality product to me. Okay. Um, but look, all of that said, it seems like a great company. The one platform ish dynamic that they have is the social networking model where you can have friends and then you can see if other friends are taking classes and there's a, you know, competitive dynamic to see who is exercising more and, and harder and more aggressively and who is not. But, you know, is that more of, does that make them a social network? Well, I, I think what we go
1: back and look at, you know, for the, the platform insights product and looking at, is this a platform? Is, do they make revenue from this? It seems like this is an add-on feature for them. There is no real core transaction that generates revenue here. So if you were to say, you know, would we consider them a platform business? Doesn't sound like it.
0: Yeah. Or they may have a platform dynamic, but it's not a material part of the business. Right. Hence, they are a linear, sure, technology company with an integrated bike product. Yep. Um, Doesn't mean that the company is bad um or overpriced I, I don't know exactly where they're
1: gonna ipo at i think i think you're seeing a lot more of these kinds of smart fitness products taking off and coming out i think peloton was one of the early movers so i expect in the next three to five years you're going to start seeing some bigger competition uh coming in for them but they've definitely got a good niche that they've uh, narrowed out for themselves and uh, definitely think there's some opportunity
0: there Hour to them um wall street journal look at this cover article taking up my whole iPad screen. I don't know. I find that kind of annoying. Um and like it's not even one full iPad screen. It's a it's a scroll and a half. I guess they're trying to emphasize how many fraudulent products Amazon has on its site. But here's the problem. Thousands of products banned. So so Wall Street Journal gets published an article saying that they had I think 5 or 6000 identified 5 or 6000 products on Amazon that were fraudulent or the product descriptions weren't accurate um or there's some kind of other issue basically these these products were misleading customers
1: right and I think in some cases breaking laws
0: and then Amazon I think took down maybe 3000 or so of them so maybe 60% and then this is the follow up article that says they've ceded control of its site and um, just like tech companies have struggled to tackle misinformation on their platforms, a- Amazon has proven unable or unwilling to effectively police third party sellers on its site. I mean, this seems a little disingenuous to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you have to remember the scale that Amazon operates at. It has, what, like 300 million plus SKUs, uh, let alone multiple sellers for each of those SKUs. So you're talking about you know hundreds of millions of sellers. Uh, or you know, some sell multiple products, so maybe not that quite that. But there's a tons of people here operating. Uh, Amazon also recently put out its own uh, we have small business report saying, "Here's all the businesses that have been built on Amazon, and we're, we've been good for small businesses." Which in many right. ways is true.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, but I think so. If you think of it in terms of the scale of Amazon, a few thousand products doesn't seem like that big a deal. I think what it does show this is
0: like 00001 percent.
1: Right. But but what I'd say it does show is that if I'm looking at Amazon, I don't expect them to self-police this the same way. This is a basically rules and standards, trust and quality issue. Can I trust the products I'm buying on Amazon or not? And so far, Amazon has basically had to self-police this the same way a, a Facebook or Google has had to self-police, you know, what is fake news? What is a good quality content? And in an ideal scenario, it doesn't want to do this, but it seems like it has some legal obligation or soon will if it doesn't to do this. Uh, so this is this is the kind of thing where a regulatory body could have a positive impact. If I were to say, where would you look at where it can help impact the consumer experience for Amazon, making sure that these kinds of things don't have and ha- happen, having some kind of independent review process that isn't you know just the Wall Street Journal, but someone who's ongoing focused on this, that that could be a positive uh, but be, to make but- this seem like this is, you know, a pervasive issue that means Amazon is, uh, you know, rude or, you know, up a creek without a paddle and can't figure it out. I think that's uh, a little bit alarmist,
0: uh, kind of clickbaity. Here's the problem. If you try to regulate this and say, you know, here, consumer protection, you have to have these policies or whatever it is, right? Um, it's going to make it just that much harder for the other up-and-coming marketplace competitors to Amazon to compete with Amazon because Amazon's going to be able to comply with those rules in a bigger and better way than everyone else. Well, I I think you could structure it in a way that it's focused on the, you
1: know, too big to fail kind of players. You on, say on just, Amazon is so on just big. just the modern monopolies. Amazon is so big, it's systemically important. It can't control all the stuff that it has on its marketplace. So it needs an independent body to help it do that. Some kind of review board.
0: Well, uh, yeah, or and this if just I'm a goes, startup,
1: then I, mean, I don't necessarily qualify that the same way if I'm, you know, a small regional bank, I might not qualify as uh, systemically important. So I think, yeah, I think just, there's ways to deal with that. Uh, whether or not I expect it to be dealt with effectively is another question. Yeah. Uh, but
0: I mean, end of the, the day, what happens? I mean, I, I, again, this is a little bit different than the B2B distribution industry where if, if those products are fraudulent or go wrong, I mean, it could, it could mess up an entire assembly line of products and, and really have a lot that of could also
1: hurt people in a serious right. way.
0: Right. I mean, again, There could, that could be this scenario here, but you know, I think most of these you're going to get refunded and then the seller is going to get banned or, or, or their reputation is going to be severely, uh, you know, uh, negatively impacted on Amazon. Yeah. They have procedures in place for this. They've, they're definitely taking off. I guarantee Amazon's taking off millions of of products every day of of products. Yes. Tens of thousands every day, maybe hundreds of thousands every day that they're already doing this. Wall Street Journal found five or six thousand. Great. I don't know. If you try and create some overbroad marketplace regulation, you're actually just gonna make the marketplace landscape less competitive rather than more competitive, which ultimately is hurting the consumer much more in the grand scheme of things.
1: So, yeah, I mean yeah. I, I think the the what I would take away from this is Amazon can certainly do better and there are ways to get there. Uh, and it doesn't hurt to have that pointed out, but I don't think this is like a pervasive issue that is the sky is falling. I tell you this,
0: it's not a pervasive issue that should take up a screen and a half on my iPad. That's what I'll tell you. <laughs> so OpenTable. <laughs> Open is Table. Open owned by Booking.com. It was it was acquired for um, maybe one or two billion dollars a few years ago. Yep. Not a too material acquisition. But what is interesting is Open Table is definitely the most dominant reservation platform for restaurants in the United States. It's a global company as well. Booking.com owns uh priceline.com and a bunch of other businesses that we've, that we've talked about. Basically booking.com and Expedia are the two large, you know, hotel, uh, marketplaces and they do air flights as a few
1: of these kind of booking type sites, uh, In as booking.com. well as they started to do, uh, more kind of alternative accommodations. Yep. I would say less strictly Airbnb style people renting out homes and more like kind of bed and breakfast or non-traditional hotel accommodations. Yeah. Uh, that they're using basically is to say, oh, hey, we have you know an Airbnb competitor.
0: And and booking is in plat. so this is what I thought was interesting is you're seeing a convergence in the food industry. You're seeing it, American Express by Resi. You're seeing Caviar actually get acquired out of Square. So yep. you're seeing consolidation in the food delivery marketplace space. Now what you're seeing is OpenTable come in, the dominant uh, restaurant reservation platform, um, come in and say, hey, we're going to do food delivery, but we're, we're not going to try and handle cause really the food delivery marketplaces are a three-sided marketplace. I have the customer the restaurant and then the third party courier right. delivery, um, contractor. And what OpenTable is saying, I'm just going to partner with Caviar, Grubhub, and Uber Eats to do all the fulfillment to these stores. And, and I'm sure help give them the, the menus and the inventory and all that kind of stuff. And, but you've gotten all the, all now I argue, you know, probably the three largest players in food delivery. Um, What delivery hero is not here. Um, But the other, you know, three large players agreeing to come onto this and um, it just rolled out. And I'm sure there's some rev share and that kind of stuff. But to me that, you know, this is really the beginning of open table getting into, I'd say a much more holistic offering of going end to end of catering to the restaurant right, right? it was i'm gonna help you now bring people into the store right now this is saying well i think their example was if it's raining and you don't want to go there i'm still going to let you now order food from the right. restaurant and
1: i i definitely see some natural synergy here if you're saying i'm going to cancel my reservation because it's raining it's just one example okay right. do you want to order food takeout or delivery from there yep. instead a uh, way for that restaurant to keep that business if from a restaurant's point of view, having all this stuff in one place could definitely be attractive. Yep. And um, the interesting
0: thing sense. with open tables, the economics of their platform actually aren't that good. You know, I think they would charge like at, at a time they were charging a dollar for every person that books, um, you know, or uh, um, comes to a, a restaurant that's changed, but you would think for open table, which has, I'd say such a dominant, role in restaurant bookings. Um that that when they were acquired for one or two billion dollars, it seemed low to me. And I think that just came down to the way the economics and and the the food industry just has such low margins. Right. And so the interesting thing that we see with the food delivery marketplaces is they're actually taking a decent size cut. Um, Definitely north of 10%. From what I've heard, it's around maybe 15%. Could be more in certain cases, um, which is a much heftier cut of the overall revenue pie. Right, And so I think that's one thing that's interesting to Open Table is trying to dip their toe into that arena. What I would not be surprised to see Open Table do next is to say, okay, how could I now do things around point of sale systems? Mm-hmm. How could I now go much deeper into the restaurant? Um, essentially kind of entire life cycle of all these different apps and technologies that are coming in. There are some mega restaurant point of sale um, tech startups. I mean, but, but these companies are raising uh, mega rounds for, uh, for restaurant point of sales.
1: Yeah. I think open table has some integrations with these various systems. I think one of the startups that has done very well toast, for example, yep. uh, they have a toast integration. So you can, Tie back to if you have an existing point of sale system. Toast has raised $500 million. Yep. Point of sale system. Linear. SaaS. Yeah. And the interesting thing about OpenTable's business too is about half of the revenue, I think, or somewhere close to that is SaaS. The other half is basically the transaction revenue. Yeah. um, Facilitating bookings and then getting basically a lead gen fee for every booking that actually shows up. Right. But a lot of that revenue is still basically this this booking system that they give to restaurants that you can basically run mm. uh, as kind of your backend system for managing bookings and where, who goes where and tables and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and that, that, so it's, it's a mix of a business, which is why, you know, at, at their valuation, it's not treated as a pure platform business, partly because they have a lot of SaaS revenue. Right. Uh, but, but I could see point of sale being an extension of that in terms of the services they offer to restaurants.
0: Uh, but and, I, I, did I think the that's challenge. the missing link because you know, the big, the big challenge is I finish my meal, right. I want to pay. It's actually, there's a lot of friction with that. There's a lot of startups that have tried to solve that. There's like some other startups that, that have come and gone by now that were trying to just make that seamless, that payment. Mm-hmm. Um, and toast, these companies aren't even really doing that. They're just giving them a better point of sale terminal. Yep. Um, and then, you know, they have a mobile thing that they can bring over to the table and you can plug your credit card into it, which Europe had been doing for years before the U S but my prediction would be that now we see open table go via booking.com and make a pretty big size acquisition in the point of sale space. And I think that would be really interesting and really give them a holistic package to the restaurant. Very hard to go head to head with that combination.
1: Yeah, I think the the challenge for them is that you know why they never grew beyond where they did. They never really expanded beyond that kind of main core transaction of booking to expand to other stuff relate, related to that. Booking.com dot com bought them because they thought, oh, if people are going and traveling a lot, what else are they doing there? They're making restaurant reservations and booking. There's a lot of overlap between those two user bases. Um, so the the synergies there is why they eventually got bought by booking, which is, of course, expanding into multiple different kind of course transactions and platform types. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but to see booking uh, basically take Open table and continue to expand that would help justify that acquisition, I think,
0: yep, agreed. Going back over to the retail side of things, um, this is uh, this one's this one's interesting. So Hudson's Bay decides to sell Lord and Taylor for a hundred million dollars to clothing rental service, LaTote. What is this company, LaTote? I mean, and this company, LaTote, is buying Lord & Taylor? I mean, and they only have 38 stores. Lord & Taylor, just the brand. I don't know, doesn't that just seem so much larger than, A, $100 million, and B, 38 stores? Well, I think it, it speaks to the struggle that a lot of retailers have been going through
1: that you know, some of these are really distressed assets and it's not just the brand that you're buying. You're also taking on, you know, does that company have debt? Does it have underperforming stores?
0: Uh, and it's becoming difficult for a lot of retailers to stay cash positive. Yeah, there's all kinds of weird things with this deal. So the CEO of Hudson's Bay uh, says, we're excited to have reached an agreement with tote Lato- that creates a new model for Lord & Taylor bringing together Fashion rental subscriptions with traditional retail. For HBC, this transaction builds upon our previous bold actions, further enabling us to focus on our greatest opportunity, Saks Fifth Avenue and Hudson's Bay. So Hudson's Bay, it's a public company. They own um, Saks Fifth Avenue, Hudson's Bay, this other Galleria thing. What's their uh, What's their stock price doing today? Oh, it's it's up. This is... This is just scary stuff to me. I guess I would be trying to get rid of this thing as well, but market cap of $2 billion. The stock is basically not moving. I bet they're just losing a bunch of money on this thing. And so they just, its kind of, it seems like a fire sale, $100 million. You get a brand of Lord & Taylor. Um, It really just does not bode well for... The retail industry. I mean, you saw um, Barneys go bankrupt a few weeks ago. Latote has raised $62 million. I don't get it. I don't get it. Where does the $100 million come from? They've only raised $62 million. You million. Know, maybe a, these guys raised it from purchase. their investors. Yeah. Or they got some debt. All kinds of funny business with this. Wow. Shocking. Honestly, it's shocking. And this this thing, I, I don't think it really got a lot of news. Yeah, L- LaTote, a rental service founded in 2012, has plans to reinvent Lord & Taylor. Oh, this is going to be good. The customers have spoken, and people are looking for smaller, more personalized locations. That's something we do well at, L- at LaTote. The rental subscription business, this idea that... I guess, I guess what these guys are saying is that they are a... Online fashion subscription business, delivering rental fashion. Okay. So this thing is basically a, um, uh, uh rent the runway ish right. competitor and rent the runway had a lot of issues, rent the runway linear. They'd have all these dresses and what would happen is the dresses get churned through so much. Right. And so, you know, they had all these stocking fees, stocking issues, Um, dresses would get damaged, you know, they'd have to replace them and the dresses after they're worn a few times would show wear and tear. And then they still need to stock all this inventory of dresses. It, you know, was not a, obviously not a marketplace model. The founders have moved on. One of the founders is now running a division at um, Walmart. And it's actually their kind of personal concierge service, but rent the runway. Wow. Has raised $540 million. So, this business to me, the, just this r- renting apparel in a linear fashion, tough business. Linear business. This Latote thing, buying a retail store, also screams desperation. Screams desperation on the Latote side, on the Hudson's Bay side. Let's just get rid of these stores. Yikes. I mean, man, retail's really in trouble. And... This is just the tip of I, and, and then they say we have a big opportunity with Saks Fifth Avenue. This is really where these, these public CEOs, they shouldn't be. Mad. I mean, I understand that they want to be bullish and they want to give a, a positive, optimistic tone. But at some point, you got to just wake up and face the music. And you, I don't want to say that they're misleading investors, but these businesses, I mean, are in a lot of trouble. And I mean, it makes sense why they're trading on the OTC market Um, and it's listed in Canada and all these kinds of things, but yikes. Um, This is scary stuff. It would not be fun to be a retail CEO right now. I can tell you that much. Um, And I think this goes back to this overall conversation. So there's basically two camps of investors generally. There's value investors and there's growth investors. Value investors are saying, okay, um, we are going to look for businesses that the true value is not priced in correctly uh, to the market, right? So what you're saying is, um, you know, you have a hypothesis about a specific stock or maybe a specific vertical that um, there's going to be either there's a, a gross misalignment in their assets you know, typical examples are like um, this business actually owns a lot of real estate and they're a retail business or there's some kind of restaurant business and they own the real estate and the real estate isn't properly priced into the overall right. stock trading price. trading at a discount
1: basically to their assets.
0: And this was true of like the, the, the oldest activist investor stories of the early 1900s where they would go to these railroad companies and then these railroad companies would have these massive uh, real estate holdings. And they would say, hey, I mean, like literally if I look at the valuation of the railroad business and I look at how much real estate you own, those two things are the same. It's not even pricing in the operations and the profit that's coming from your actual railroad business. Hey, company, you should come in and you should sell off your real estate so that, you know, and and pay a one time dividend or something like that to investors because there's a huge discrepancy in. What your company is actually valued at and what the market is pricing it at. Again, I'm overgeneralizing here, but you could generally say that that is the, the value investor theory. It's either on a company level or, or a sector level that something is not being properly recognized in the public markets. The growth investor model is a little bit different. And what that's saying is that we believe that this company. Um, although it already has very high, say, revenue multiples or, or PE multiples, right, that they are going to be able to outperform uh, over the future and that they're going to be able to um, continue to have growth that will that, that is basically not priced into uh, the current stock price. And so naturally, growth companies would resonate with tech companies. And um, what we've basically seen over the past 10 years is that growth investors have done much better than value investors. Why is that? If you look at Fang, if you look at just a lot of the tech companies, they've been able to continue to outperform. Why is it that many of the world's largest companies, now tech companies, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, Google, um, Netflix has also done very well, even though it's on a platform. Why is it that these large cap tech companies have been able to continue to outperform and continue to be earnings? Maybe they miss one earnings here or there every say like 20 um, earnings cycles or something like that. But um, why is it that this is able to happen? And here's what's going on. Yes. These, these platform companies are basically massive new business incubation engines. And these platform companies create one dominant platform. In let's say Google search, right? Let's say Google search creates a dominant platform to connect you to other websites. And now then Google is going to go and have multiple other teams that are then spinning up adjacent platform businesses that can then leverage one or both sides of the existing platform in Google search um, or other value add services or disadvantages that Google has given that it has a dominant platform business in search. What would be some examples of this? Let's jump into that. Well, I think one of
1: the, the big ones that's been a success for them is Android. So they they acquired this, at the time, small company called Android. For $50 million. And basically that became the today dominant, or along with Apple and iOS, the dominant mobile operating system. Uh, the, the goal for them uh, was basically, this, we saw this as a defensive measure. So it's not that I'm Google and I'm going to go charge all these headset makers for Android and make tons of money that way. Uh, I'm going to give this away for free. And what it does is basically provide me with a avenue to put all my Google products. So things like Google search on a phone without having to pay for access. So If you look at what Google does on the iPhone, they pay Apple a huge sum of money to be basically the default search engine or one of the default search engines. It's at engines least a billion dollars a year available yeah. on the iPhone. So the thing from Google's of point of view is if I create this platform, it helps me defend search because I don't have to pay to get access to all these
0: customers. So, Here's here. I'm just going to rattle off some names. Okay. So Google search dominant platform business for Google cash cow, turning off a bunch of cash, right? Then you have Android YouTube. Okay. You have um, G suite. uh, So all of the different like Google apps and things like that. Um, Android automotive Waymo uh, Google home. Now things that they've tried and have failed home services, um, Google glass, They bought some robot companies and sold those things off. You know, basically they have a hundred plus teams that are basically just trying to spin up other platform businesses. If you think about Facebook, okay, Facebook has had the dominant social network. Then they launched Pages and now they have more of a content platform. Now, then they launched Facebook Marketplace, right? Then- Messenger. Messenger. and then that kind of did okay. And then they bought um, Instagram Instagram, and WhatsApp. And then along the way, there are multiple other initiatives that they try and start and fail. And um, that's kind of the model. So what's interesting is that this is the mechanism that they've used to try to, to be able to outperform time and time again and to have 10 plus year runs where they're able to continue to say, look at the growth that we have. And that to me is very different than saying, I'm going to value Google and the business of search and maybe some of YouTube and Android. But then how do you appropriately price in the growth initiatives? Um, And this is where platforms are in a very special place to do this because when you have, by definition, a two-sided marketplace or a two-sided ecosystem, you have a huge advantage to then take one or both sides of the existing ecosystem, and then use that latent demand or latent supply and channel that to supercharge a new business. Yep. And it means that you can either spin out new businesses organically with a much higher rate of success, or you can buy business at multiples that almost no one else can afford. But for you, it's economical because then you can layer in all these other complementary or compounding network effects on right. top of this. It. Is,
1: that's what happened with both Instagram and YouTube where when Google bought in YouTube at the time, people thought, oh, this is crazy. Great acquisition, done very well worth, well above what they paid for it. And uh, they had Google Video at the few time. Just for inflation, right. And same with Instagram. It was you a know, billion-dollar acquisition. Back then, that was a huge acquisition. And it has done very well for them, and it's really become one of the huge growth areas, both in terms of users and revenue for Facebook.
0: And I think that is basically the mechanism as to why growth has been able to outperform value for the past 10 years and then you have to ask yourself okay well what do the next 10 years entail do we think that this cycle is going to repeat itself (laughs) Um, and uh, my answer is absolutely yes there's nothing stopping these companies um, from continuing to try to spin out additional platform businesses if anything They have now hundreds of teams where they might have had 10 teams before. Amazon has literally basically trademarked its process to do this in the six-page memo, right? Where Jeff Bezos, you're basically delivering a six-page. I don't know if Jeff still reads every one of these, but he used to read every single six-page memo. And it was a six-page memo. It has a certain structure to it. And it basically is saying that you're going to write the press release for the launch of this new platform business. And that press release is going to obviously give an overview of the value prop and all these kinds of things. And it's going to have a bunch of FAQs uh, frequently asked questions. And then that six page memo is basically kind of the platform hypothesis that this team is then going to go out there and try and deliver upon and validate. Um, And Amazon has done this just as well as any of the large tech monopolies. Um, And so then you have to ask yourself, well, what's stopping from amazon continuing to do this you know i guess do they get too big and they can't focus and you know they they get sloppy at doing this i don't think we've seen anything that is indicating their inability to to do this or that their size is preventing them from doing this to a lesser degree of effectiveness
1: and I mean, we've seen them do it very successfully recently with Amazon business. Mm -hmm. So I think that you're starting to see... And Echo
0: and, uh, you know, um, a number of other things that Amazon Amazon in the um, freight and logistics space and all of these things. I mean, it's just... So then you have to ask yourself, okay, are the large tech tech monopolies going to continue to outperform? Yes. And then you have to say, okay, well... um, for for platforms in general, over the next five to ten years, could could more pl- dominant platforms actually start to to emulate this this new platform business incubation engine? And I also think they're going to be able to do it. Look at Uber. We were just talking about Uber and Uber Eats and Uber Freight. Okay. Yeah, right. And you know, then they've got the cop uh, helicopters and all you know, all these and and autonomy and all these other things, but. Um, You're now starting to see recent IPO businesses expand into adjacent platforms. And now what you're really seeing is this league of platform conglomerate. And I think that's really what I would define this as, is the moment you have a dominant platform business in one area, and now you're able to spin out complementary platforms in similar adjacent or complementary areas, you get platform conglomerate status. And so Uber is definitely in platform conglomerate status. Lyft is not. That's what we were just talking about a couple episodes ago. Yep. What are some other companies that you think are are getting into platform conglomerate status? I think Booking, which
1: we were just talking about earlier, would definitely qualify. They've got a number of different uh, platforms within the different types of accommodations and reservations, as well as uh, you know
0: uh, OpenTable, which we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would throw Slack in there. Yep, communication platform. They launched a VC fund a few years ago to spur for other um, startups to build software on top of Slack and other integrations. And so now they have a dev platform angle um, going on top of that. Yeah, Um, I'd say Bloomberg is a platform conglomerate that not many people are familiar with, right? It started out with a lot of the messaging and kind of social networking on there, but now they also have an app marketplace. They have a data marketplace that you can now put software or additional data into the marketplace and people can buy it. Um, there are actually, we should actually make a list of all the different plat, you know, platform conglomerates. Right.
1: Big companies with multiple platform types that they've built successfully yes, on
0: top of each other. Exactly. And yeah. I think there's a number in China that, that we're seeing do this. certainly. And so I think that's the mechanism for where can growth businesses who already are, say, hitting a point of maturity in the core business outperform, it's in their ability to become new platform business incubation engines and to really make the evolution into platform conglomerate status. Yep. Which Dara was very familiar with, by the way, at Expedia, transitioning the business into that. They also have multiple platform initiatives going on in Expedia. Um, and so I think that doesn't mean that Lyft won't be able to outperform over the next, say, five years, just on its core business. I think it's really at the point where you say lift in five years, once the ride-sharing business is more mature, is a lift. Are the number two platform players in a given vertical, are they able to figure out how they could become platform conglomerate? Because then that's kind of where your growth could slow. Right. And you could kind of plateau. You need to be able to fill out that chart and have multiple um, kind of rising stars. Yep. And
1: um, you need those growth initiatives, yes. those new platform types that are coming up as the current one matures.
0: Exactly. So we're going to dig into this some more. I think this is an interesting topic. And I think that doesn't mean that all tech companies will naturally outperform, but I think there's a way to look at a certain cohort of them. And certainly, just naturally, that's going to gravitate towards the ones that have more of a winner take all market-leading position right. in their given platform uh, vertical. Now, what's interesting is how does a company like Netflix do this? Mm-hmm. And and I I think they could, but it's harder. Um,
1: um, they don't have an existing net, two-sided network. It's a very different model to embrace. Yes. So there's a, a mental model shift and a different understanding of what are our strengths as a business? What is our value prop to customers for Netflix? That's different than say Google.
0: Yeah. And I would say that would probably be the thing to really give if platform conglomerates are, are kind of in a league of their own. What's the thing let's, let's take, let's go really far out, not five years, but 10 years, 15 years as this, as this methodology continues um. And you have more and more platform conglomerates. What is the macroeconomic shift which could actually try to rival platform conglomerates or at least make it a more competitive environment outside of just platform conglomerates competing with platform conglomerates? And I think that is what is right now a huge vacuum of the large linear enterprises, Netflix included, to figure out how they could be spinning out platforms. And that really, I think, is probably one of the biggest missed opportunities uh, or biggest opportunities in the next 10 or 20 years is to say, why is it only that platforms, you know, eh, eh, just because do you have to be a platform to spin out a platform business? And the answer is no.
1: Right, you still have assets if I'm a big, linear business that I could use to go spin out a platform company. It's just you have to think about your business, what your core strengths are. Uh, how you differentiate in the market in a different way than you typically have done historically? Yes. So there's a shift involved in a
0: very different way. It's I would say I would argue net net all things can kept equal, it's easier if you have a dominant platform to spin out another platform. Okay, it's easier, but it doesn't mean that just because you are a, a linear enterprise that you aren't able to also spin out a platform. It just right. means it's there's harder a transformation in ways. process there. That said, I will say that linear enterprises also have a different set of advantages, right? And not all platform opportunities are made the same. So, you know, even if you're two industry, you're in the same industry, but you have one platform business and one linear business and you're competing, let's say in the media industry, right? You actually have different footing. You have a different foundation that you could go after. doesn't mean that you're all going to go after the same platform opportunity. You have different strengths and weaknesses, but, um, You still have plenty of platform opportunities. I think you've seen
1: linear companies trying to compete with these platforms fail is when they basically uh, just try to imitate the scale of the platform without actually embracing the business model, understanding why it is that size, how it got so successful. So you've seen this in media is why I brought this up where you have, for example, Verizon that made a bunch of acquisitions in media, like, oh, we're going to create an ad network that's going to compete with Google and Facebook. Now they're winding that down, selling all the stuff off. They recently sold off what was it, Tumblr? Uh, and that strategy didn't work because basically they were saying we're just going to get big, and there was no coherent, you know, platform strategy behind how you're actually going to spin out and get some unique content uh, and build network effects and right. the things that actually make these businesses work yeah. at such scale successfully.
0: Yeah. Use their existing advantages properly, right? To you know, to increase their chance of success. So, anyway. Um, that's it for us today on winner take all. Thanks for joining us.